0: Open your Bibles up to the book of Ephesians as we make our way into the second chapter beginning this morning, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. As you're turning there, I was just reminded this week, I was visiting somebody in the hospital and as I was driving away, I was just sort of thinking about it all and and I was in particular, thinking about the blessing that we have of medical care in this country. There are just, <laughs> there's just tons of problems, to be sure. And, um, but there is, there is just such a blessing in the reality that, that when there's something wrong, you can, there's a hospital to go to, and there are doctors and nurses, and they care, and, they're, and they have great skill, and there are access to medicines, and just all of these things that so many people in the world uh, don't have. And uh, as I said, to be sure, there's much we could criticize and and, uh, even I find myself at times complaining about, but but certainly there is far much more to be thankful for. And just kind of thinking about the whole topic of the medical system and doctors and so forth, um, you know, when you go to the doctor, you're entrusting yourself into the doctor's care, aren't you? You're making certain assumptions about them. I always look on the wall in their office. Um, all of those of you in the medical profession here, that when you step out, I'm uh, looking at all your diplomas and what you've, you know, all the things that you've achieved and so forth. They don't put your grades. That's too bad because I would be interested in that. Um, but but at least um, I can see the diploma and you graduated. And if you graduate with honors, they do uh, designate that. But. But just, you know, you, you go to see the doctor and you're, you're totally entrusting yourself into the doctor's care. You, you believe, um, you, you know, by going there, you believe that they have the knowledge and the wisdom to properly diagnose what's wrong with you and to prescribe some treatment uh, for it. And so there's just that, that whole sense of which you are very much, you know, in their care. And uh, further thinking about all these things, you, 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 know, you can occasionally read the horror story about a wrong diagnosis. And uh, certainly uh, doctors are people, humans like all of us, and, and people make mistakes. And, and so there are um, occasionally wrong diagnoses. And, and a wrong diagnosis leads to a wrong prescription or a wrong cure, as it were, which is no cure at all. And this is very, very true in the medical realm, but it's Far more true in the spiritual realm. The consequences of a misdiagnosis in the physical realm, the worst that could happen is you will die. A misdiagnosis in the spiritual realm, the worst that can happen is you will spend eternity separated from God. And that, my friends, is a far more devastating consequence. In thinking about spiritual diagnosis, there are generally three views of humanity. There are basically three views of humanity, and and each of these views, each of these starting points leads to a different diagnosis. And so for the doctor of your soul, it's, it's critical that they have the right starting point. That is that they have God's starting point, that the, that the basic diagnosis of the human nature is correct, for it is only from that that the further diagnosis of the particular problem can come. There are some, and this is an erroneous view to be sure, but there are some that believe that man is basically well. That man is, is basically well, and, and, and what what they mean by that is that individual and societal problems are basically the result of poor choices and bad influences that it's just a bad you know a series of bad choices it's a it's a series of poor influences that that lead to these negative consequences the problem with that kind of diagnosis is that if that were true then it doesn't really explain why everybody makes the bad choices And that everybody is subject to the same negative influences, nor does it, if you begin to follow it backwards in time, it doesn't hold together logically because it doesn't explain where it all came from. Who made the first bad choice, as it were? And why did their choice have anything to do with me? So man is well. It just doesn't work. It's a poor starting place. Another starting place is that man is sick that man is sick. Basically, this point of view recognizes sin as the source of humanity's troubles, and that sin has rendered every person uh, mortally wounded. Mortally wounded. In a very, very, very bad way. In their sick and wounded condition, those who hold to this view, believe that God enables these mortally wounded individuals through His grace to reach out to Christ and to call upon Him to save them. And then there is the third view. The view that we will look at together this morning in the second chapter of Ephesians. And the third view is that man is dead. Man is not well. Man is not sick, dreadfully sick. Man is dead. Man is dead. Sin has killed the life of God in the human soul. And thus man is unable to do anything to please God, including calling out to God to save him. Until and unless that God intervenes to regenerate the dead human How we answer the question of man's condition drives the way we conduct ministry. It drives the way we understand missions. It drives the way we understand and practice evangelism. It drives and shapes our practices as a parent. And it shapes the way we understand the Christian life. The starting point here is critical. The wrong starting point will produce the wrong diagnosis and thus an ineffective cure. Here in this second chapter, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 3, we are going to see Paul's devastating diagnosis of the state of humanity without Christ. Paul's devastating diagnosis of the state of humanity without Christ. It is a threefold diagnosis that he has for us here in this short section of verses. It begins with the disease, it proceeds to the symptoms, and then finishes with the outcome. It begins with Paul declaring what is the disease, and then he moves from that to the symptoms of that disease, and then to its final outcome. And it is dreadful. It is dreadful. This is not the kind of passage one would necessarily pick out to preach from. Because in the section that we have before us this morning, there is no good news. There are no happy thoughts, save one as you sit here this morning, if you have been united by faith with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, then this is all past tense for you. You were in this condition and have now been delivered from it by the sovereign grace of God outlined in the first chapter of this letter. But if you sit here this morning without Christ, this is a very, very dark diagnosis for you. Let's begin the disease. Spiritually dead. The doctor walks into the examining room and he says, I have some bad news. You are spiritually dead. Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Immediately that launches us into an inquiry of what is death? What is death? Well, biblically, death is separation. When it's boiled down to its most fundamental concept, death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the body and the soul. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul. From the merciful and kind and gracious presence of God, our Creator and loving Father. That is spiritual death. Now what kind of death is Paul talking about here when he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins? Is he talking about physical death? Well, manifestly, he can't be because he's going to go on in verses 2 and 3 and he's going to talk about their their manner of life, how they lived their lives. And so, obviously, he can't be talking about them as being physically dead because physically dead people don't do anything. So, he is talking here about spiritual death, the greater tragedy. And physical death is a great tragedy, to be sure. But he's talking about the greater tragedy. Spiritual death. A soul separated from the kindness and goodness of God. Now, Paul describes this state of being dead as being dead in your trespasses and sins. You see it there in verse 1? You were dead, past tense, writing to believers here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespass. The, the, the idea behind this word is, is to make a false step, to make a false step. It's the idea of, of crossing a known boundary or, or deviating from an established pathway. You know, you visit public buildings and things like that and, and there'll always be signs, you know, keep off the what? Grass, That's the very thing people ignore. Right, And that's the idea here, is to trespass, is to, is to leave the sidewalk and to walk across a cut across the lawn in contradiction to the sign. It is a false step. It is to deviate a known or right boundary or path. Sin refers to missing the mark or falling short. So one is a, is a willful choice and the other is a, is a coming up short, as it were. And together, the, these two... These two concepts that Paul speaks of when he says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, he's saying you are dead in both the positive and and negative dimensions of human wrongdoing. He sort of gathers it all up in these two words. In other words, that, that before Christ, you were, we were, I was, both a rebel and a failure in the light of God's holy character and His standards. I neither measured up and I intentionally violated the known boundaries. Dead and trespasses and sins. Now, the use of them here is what's called a hendiadys, and it's a fancy word. It just means one concept expressed in two words. One concept expressed in two words. He says here, "You were dead." In the preposition "in" speaks of a sphere. That is, that your, your state of being is deadness. It may also speak um, causally, you are dead because of your trespass and sin. And it may well be both intended here by the Apostle Paul. You are in a sphere of trespass and sins, your deadness, that's what it characterizes. You're dead because of it. Now someone might well say how can a how can a person who appears to be alive be dead? How, how can you speak of somebody who's alive as, as though they're dead? I mean, what about um, what about that star athlete, right? they're so full of life, they're so full of energy and and, uh, and everything that our society thinks is so desirable. How how can we how can we say to the professional athlete, you're dead? I don't look dead. How do we say to the brilliant student, one of the local colleges here, who graduated summa cum laude, you know, in their from their high school, the valedictorian, and now they're getting straight A's at you know at the local university here and so forth? How do we say to that person, "You're dead. You're dead." How do we speak of the popular movie star and say, "You're dead." I mean, they, they seem to have everything. And yet if you're dead, you have nothing. I mean, these people are very much alive in body and mind and, and personality, but, but their soul has no life. There's no life to the soul. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and unresponsive to His Word. They don't love Christ, no matter what they might protest or even write on the black paint under their eyes. They don't long to fellowship with Him. They may desire the blessings of God. Certainly the, the health and the happiness and, and relationships and so forth that can come as a fruit of God being a child of God, but at their core, they don't want God. They have no desire for God. Why? Because they're dead. They're dead. Just like those who are physically dead cannot communicate with the living, right? You, you go to a funeral, and if it's an open casket kind of funeral, and You know, you walk up to the front and that's the polite thing to do. Boy, it's really awkward for people. They walk up there and and you, you know, I've stood there many times and you hear people say all kinds of things, but I can guarantee you this. Never, ever, ever has there been a response. Why? Because they're dead. And the dead cannot communicate with the living. So, the spiritually dead cannot communicate with the living God. They are lost and separated from Him. Just as the physical dead have no power to to bring themselves back to life, right? They don't just sit up. So the spiritually dead need to be brought back to life by the power of the Spirit of God. That's why the Bible speaks of men and women, boys and girls, without Christ In the following kinds of ways. It speaks of them as dead and needing to be made alive. It speaks of them as lost and needing to be found. It speaks of them as born dead in their sin and needing to be born again. It speaks of them as born, excuse me, eternally perishing and needing to be saved. This is incredibly bad news. The doctor walks into the room and says, you're dead. You are separated from God and you have no hope for ever restoring that relationship on your own. Paul proceeds now from here to describe the symptoms the symptoms of that spiritual death. The disease is spiritual death, Paul now, in the next couple of verses, will begin to describe the symptoms. Right? The doctor gives you the diagnosis and says, this is what it is. And then he begins to tell you, what is it like? What's going to happen to me? In Paul's diagnosis here, he says we are sinfully driven. These are the symptoms. You are sinfully driven. Again, if you know Christ here this morning, you were sinfully driven. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul says that for the believer, they formerly walked. They formally walked. This word, walked, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a very common metaphor, a common Hebrew metaphor to, to speak about how a, per, a person conducts their everyday life. It speaks of how do you live your life. How do you conduct yourself in your life? The, for the Hebrew, it can be summarized in the, in the idea of walking. And for them, particularly with regard to how you conducted yourself with regard to the Torah, How did you walk with regard to the law of God? That thought, by the way, carries over into the Proverbs where it's picked up and there are two paths presented in the Proverbs, right? There's the path of wisdom and there's the path of foolishness. How do you walk? How do you conduct your life? Do you conduct your life in wisdom or do you conduct your life in foolishness? So by introducing his symptoms here, the symptoms of spiritual death, with the metaphor of walking, Paul is indicating something here. And What he's indicating is that in the state of unbelief or spiritual death, a person conducts their everyday life, driven, he will say, by three powerful forces. Three very powerful forces that operate internally and externally upon us. In which you formerly walked, he says, according to the course of this world. That's the first powerful force. According to the course of this world. The preposition kata, according to, it conveys the idea of under the control of. According to, it's under the control. Let me, let me show you this. Go deal go your left to Romans chapter 8 and verse 4. Same verse. Basic formulation is used there. This is important to understand. Romans chapter 8 and verse 4. Paul says at the end of verse 3, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk, here it is, according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is not under the control of the flesh, but under the control of the spirit. Over in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2. Same, same idea. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 2. Paul says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I Proposed to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked, and here it is again, according to the flesh, that is, under the control of the flesh. I will turn you there, but you can see it also in Colossians chapter two and verse eight. Okay? So you can... so on over here back in Ephesians, when Paul says, You formerly walked, that is, you formerly conducted your life under the control of the course of this world. Under the control of the course of this world. This is how the spiritually dead person conducts their life. Under the control of this world. Interesting expression here. The control of this world literally is the age of this world. If you were to literally render the Greek there. The age of this world. And it's, a, and it's a unique kind of Pauline expression, and, and it basically denotes the, the, the characteristics of life in this present evil age. Okay? So when he talks about here the course of this world, he's talking about the, the, the world at large, the cosmos, as it, is, as it exists in rebellion against God. So put together, what is he saying? He is saying that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formally conducted your life under the control of the world that is in open rebellion against God. One commentator says it this way, Theologically, this is the world of people organized in their opposition to God, which is represented in the various non-Christian religions, ideologies, philosophies, values, in economic systems, as well as the more mundane but equally powerful influence of peer pressure, fashion, and the media. Close quote. Now, as I read that quote and was kind of thinking about it, the last three expressions sort of stood out to me. Peer pressure, fashion, and the media as being part of the world, the cosmos. Now, it's not always evident on the surface to be sure as to, as to what and how these things like peer pressure and fashion and media are, are in rebellion and in opposition to God. It's not always apparent. In other words, there, there is no uh, easily identifiable, clear and universally sta- uh, accepted standard of, of conduct, as it were, or standard regard to God's fashion and and God's music, and God's movies. People disagree on these things. By the way, God doesn't disagree. But we do. There's no divine book of fashion that you can go to. You can search the scriptures in vain. There's no divine book of fashion. There are principles. Principles. They need to be understood and then applied. There is no divine moviegoers' guide. OK? I know you can go online, you can check certain sources, and they'll give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down or whatever it is. I don't go to the movies so, or seldom, so I don't, I don't know what's the latest, but I can just tell you this, there is no God's Guide to the movies. And there is no divine playlist or your iPhone, or Android, or whatever other thing you use, right? There just isn't. So wisdom, maturity, serious self-evaluation, our own heart motives, the underlying message being communicated in fashion and, and, uh, and music and movies and all of that has to be sorted through. It's a maze that has to be sorted through for the Christian. And sober-minded Christians may well come to slightly differing viewpoints on these matters, to be sure. But I will tell you this. The undiscerning consumption of large quantities of modern culture is at best naive and likely an area of sinful rebellion. I'll say it again. The discerning consumption of large quantities of modern culture is at best naive, meaning that you think it's all neutral and expresses no worldview at all, but is far more likely to be an area of sinful rebellion. The Bible has a term for it, it's called worldliness, worldliness. Now, among the young, the concept of worldliness gets relabeled legalism. Because if we relabel it legalism, then we, can have, we don't have to deal with the issue underlying it. We can just avoid it's legalism. Everybody knows legalism is bad, so, so I'm going to the movies, Mom. Listen. Listen to me. Scoffing at worldliness is done at your own peril. It is done at your own peril. Do not mess around with this stuff. The first powerful force Paul speaks of here is the world. Secondly, he speaks of the devil. The devil in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In Ephesians, this spirit being here is identified as the devil. For example, over in chapter 4 and verse 27, where Paul says, Do not give the devil an opportunity. Chapter 6 and verse 11 Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Down in verse 16, speaking of the same uh, spirit being, he says, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So he's identified as the devil and the evil one. Here Paul calls him a, a ruler or a prince, right? The prince of the power of the air. The idea is the, is the chief leader among the powers of darkness. By the way, Matthew speaks of this one as the ruler of the demons. Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty four. John's gospel calls him the ruler of this world. John twelve and verse thirty one. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 calls him the God of this age. But he is known most often in the New Testament by his Old Testament name, which is Satan. The enemy or the adversary, that's what the word means. Satan. Paul says for the spiritually dead that they conduct their lives under the power of Satan. Satan. Now he is not here in verse 2 of chapter 2, he is not directly focusing here on the personal identity of Satan, so much as the the realm over which Satan rules, right? According to the the, um, prince of the power of the air, the idea is this realm, this rulership, the air. I think the best way to understand this is is basically the, the unseen spiritual world. He goes on to say of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, that, that he characterizes Satan here as the, as the being who, who's exercising effective and, and compelling power. The word, that, the Greek word that's used here, where it says power of the air, is a very strong word. And he's saying that, that the devil or Satan is exercising very effective, very compelling power over the lives of men and women. So effective is his control that Paul refers to his victims here as, notice this, sons of disobedience. The end of verse 2. Sons of disobedience. In other words, those whose lives are characterized by disobedience. To be the son of is to be, is to be identified with the Father, as it were, to be, to be characterized by it. So to be a son of disobedience is to be one whose life is characterized by disobedience. Now, Paul is not saying that all people outside of Christ are demon-possessed, okay? He is not saying that. Rather, what he is saying is that all people outside of Christ live under the powerful tyranny of God's archenemy. And they prefer to answer His promptings rather than to praise the God who made them. It's likely ringing in your ears, Paul's words in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, right? As he lays out his indictment of humanity. They do not thank God. They do not worship God. Instead, they, they turn to their own way, and in what Paul says here is, is that they listen to and respond to the promptings of the evil one. They are living in his realm. Now for the Christian, for the Christian, the, the, the devil is a defeated enemy. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 make that very, very clear. He is a defeated enemy. However, he does not surrender without a struggle, and he remains a very serious threat to the believer. And we must stand steadfastly and resist him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul says over here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. He needs to be resisted. Because he's a very potent enemy. Beloved, do not underestimate the power of the devil and do not dabble in his realm. That means no fortune tellers, no seances, no Ouija boards, no tarot cards, no astrology, As well as books and movies and magical incantations and false religions and pagan idols to decorate your homes. Stay away from all of this. For these are of the realm of the evil one. And he is very powerful. Third. The flesh. The spiritually dead one operates willingly under the power of the world, the devil, and the flesh. Notice what Paul says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This spiritual deadness, this, this bondage to the control of the world and the devil is not just the desperate condition of the pagan on the far back side of the globe. Or in Paul's day, the, the fate of the Gentiles. Paul, notice he includes himself here. He says, among them, we too. He includes himself and he includes the Jewish believers with him. Among them, we too... We're in the exact same predicament. The exact same predicament. In other words, it is a universal disease that infects the entire world without regard to social status, ethnic uh, heritage, religious background, socioeconomic class, education, personality, or parental upbringing. Everyone is dead. And in bondage to the world, the flesh, And the devil. But it gets worse. It gets worse. Because Paul says here, because we are spiritually dead before we come to Christ, he says there is no godly restraint on what we think and do. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, he says. We lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, when Paul speaks of the flesh here, it is not a reference to our, to our physical existence. It is a reference to our, to our humanity and its sinfulness and rebellion against God. And in that realm, Paul says, we are driven by our passions, right? We lived in the lusts of the flesh. We were driven by our passions. If you are without Christ here this morning, you are being driven by your passions. You're being driven by your passions. That includes things like your sexual passions, your bodily appetites, emotions like anger and rage and envy and dissensions and disputes and jealousies. Paul lays it all out in Galatians chapter 5. This is the fruit of the flesh. By the way, this explains the anger and hostility in this world. You're Driving down the freeway, right? Somebody cuts somebody else off and, and the person comes unglued. What, what, what gives? What drives all of that? The flesh is what drives it. Paul says, not only do we live in this realm, but we indulge it in thought and deed. Do you see that? Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, it is is not forced and accidental. It is desirable and natural. Again, we can see some additional light shed on this in the 8th chapter of Romans, so I'll direct you there to... The 8th chapter of Romans, and beginning in verse 5, where Paul will lay out the contrast by those who are living under the control of the Spirit with those who are living under the control of the flesh. Or, according to the Spirit, according to the flesh. The 8th chapter of Romans. And beginning in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. That's a statement of ability, by the way. Or, in this case, inability. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. what it means to live in the realm of the flesh, indulging it. In other words, taking pleasure in wicked thoughts, rather than turning away from them. Crafting and cultivating perverse, self-centered ideas, which eventuate into perverse and self-centered actions. This is what it means to be dead in Christ. The mind is corrupted, foul. The images that it conjures up, blasphemous, horrific. Beloved, this means that people are not basically good people. Good people who slip up and do bad things occasionally. I just love it when the public figure finally gets caught in one of their lies and deceptions and then they have to make a confession. And inevitably, the confession begins with, that's not who I really am. Really. So was it like an avatar who did that? Now, that's exactly who you are. It's exactly who you are. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And, beloved, when we make confession, for we all sin, let's be honest with God and with each other. And let's not start out with, you know, I don't know why I did that. That's really not who I am. Uh You want to try it again? Let's start with, I don't know why I haven't done this more often. Because this is who I really am. Spiteful. Self-focused. Vengeful. Yeah, this is who I really am. That's why I need Christ. Not once, but all the time. Because I have no hope. None. But His blood and His righteousness alone. Alone. Our minds are idle factories, churning out millions of evil and grotesque images only a fraction of which actually actualize themselves into space and time, and God be praised for His mercy in holding it back. Because if every thought that went through my mind were to eventuate in a deed, it would make Adolf Hitler look like a saint. And I'm not alone. Paul says, this is the human heart. It is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can understand it? Who can restrain it? Who can change it? None but Christ alone. Oh, my friends, Paul will go on to say here that because of Christ and that we are his children. We're to take no part in these things. He'll begin later in this letter over in chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 4 and beginning in verse four, uh, 17. Chapter 4 and 17, he'll say, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walked in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and on he'll go. We're to take no part in this stuff. It's not even to be named among us, Paul says. The battle begins here. It begins here. James is very clear. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. The bait hook is dangled in front of our nose and like the stupid fish we come out from under the rock and bite the hook. And James goes on to say that when you do that, sin is conceived and it gives birth to death. It is, it is sin babies born and then they they generate death. Paul says over in Second Corinthians chapter four, excuse me, chapter ten and verse five, he says, Therefore we are to take every thought captive. Listen, the battle is up here. It's in the mind, and, and that means that nobody but God knows what you're thinking. It also means when you go off the rails, it didn't just happen. You're off the rails and you're thinking for a long time before that. So we've got to fight. And we have to fight violently, hand to hand. We need to use the sword of the Spirit to do battle, be transformed. Here, first. Back to that whole culture thing, the whole worldliness. Listen, if you're just gobbling this stuff down, right? How in the world will you stand? You eat a garbage diet, you're going to have garbage health. Spiritually dead, sinfully driven. Finally, the person without Christ is headed for disaster. The outcome? Shockingly destined. Shockingly destined. Spiritually dead, sinfully driven, finally shockingly destined. Where Paul finishes verse 3 and says, We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, as Americans, we're a pretty um, bold and uh, self-assured lot. I don't know how many times when uh, you go to a funeral or whatever and that there's this basic assumption that the deceased are now enjoying an endless round of golf or pursuing their chosen hobbies. I mean, under that is is the basic assumption that we're okay with God. And so when we die, you know, old uncle so-and-so, he's up there, you know, and he's just playing golf. So what Paul says. He says, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. I mean, each phrase here is shocking. Let's just begin with the word wrath. What is God's wrath? And how does it differ from man's? Hmm? The word wrath or gay in the Greek, it's used 36 times in the New Testament, 21 of them by Paul. Unlike man's bad temper, God's wrath is, and I quote, neither spite nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely sin. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it, and His resolve instead to condemn it. Close quote. It is a fearful thing. The writer of the Hebrews says in 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is angry with sin and sinners. Notice Paul says here, by nature. By nature. In other words, by birth. By birth. He says, by nature, not by nurture. It is not by nurture that we are children of wrath. It is by nature. And by the way, he is speaking of the believer, right? And their former condition. So all those who think somehow predestination equals salvation or election equals salvation, the answer is no, it does not. Because the elect were formerly children of wrath. And at the same time, greatly loved by God. Now this is not denying here that parenting in society can have a great influence upon how an individual turns out, to be sure. But we need to recognize, (laughs) we need to recognize that children are born neither innocent nor good. Good. Children are born neither innocent nor good, and if you don't believe me, and you're not convinced by the scriptures, then you need to sign up for the nursery, (laughs) the two-year-old nursery, where there is murder in those little eyes. (laughs) Yep. And they'll bite you. Some of them. Jonathan Edwards called them cute little vipers. Right? Desperately in need of God's saving grace. It's the best thing you can do as a parent for your children? Evangelize them. Evangelize them. Repeatedly. Regularly. Even after they make their profession of faith. Even after they are baptized. Continue to evangelize them because we never outgrow the gospel. Never. Children of wrath, Paul says. Children of wrath. This is a Hebraism. Same kind of expression as sons of disobedience. Here it means those that are, that are worthy to receive divine wrath, divine judgment. There's a difference here though to note Sons of disobedience, it, it indicates uh, that there's a certain idea of personal responsibility or choice, whereas a child carries the idea of, of uh, such a close dependence upon the parent that it's, it's not a choice that's being made. It right, kind of differentiates child from, from son. One is, is to be thought of as, as an adult making choices. In other words, that the sons of disobedience choose to disobey God while the child of wrath is under the wrath of God as a result of their connection to their parents and their ancestors. I told you this is shocking. Even as the rest, Paul says, by the way, which swoops up all of humanity. pulls it all together here. All humanity, outside of Christ, lies in this sinful condition and its resultant shocking consequence. Over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, don't turn there, but Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so sin spread to all men, because all sinned. We spent considerable time when we were in Romans unpacking the fifth chapter of Romans and I'm not going to start to try to do it again. If you want to, go to the website, listen and watch the sermons. What Paul is saying is that in Adam's transgression, you and I fell. In Adam's transgression, you and I fell. His sin is my sin. His sin is your sin. And if you don't like it, then I ask you, how could you like Christ's righteousness being your righteousness, huh? If you really want to stand on your own, be careful what you ask for. All people are born spiritually dead, driven by sin and destined for the wrath of God. And that, my friends, is a dreadful diagnosis. There is no hope in that at all. There is no way out of the box. There's no sliver of light under the door. There's no movement or motion in the room because all are dead. And it's at that moment, and it's at that moment when the news could not be worse that Paul's next words break through like water to the parched ground. For they are life from the dead. Look at verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. rescued us from sin and death I trust you know that rescue that it's a reality in your life but if you're not sure if you're not sure today's the day I want to talk to you answer your questions I'm not going to browbeat you. Open the Bible with you. Show you the truth of the Word of God. But I'm pleading with you. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, Father, The news here is so dark, so horrific, yet you didn't leave us there. You sent your Son into the world to bear it all, to carry it to Calvary's tree. There, experience the accumulated wrath of your righteous fury against all of the sin of all of your people for all of time. No, we'll extinguish it there. As a child of God, our Father, we. Respond in praise and, and join with the Apostle Paul in singing to the praise of Your glory with Your great love set upon us. That we can go out of this place this morning and we don't have to crawl out. We, we have nothing to brag of to be sure, but we can walk out in a confidence and knowing that this is who we were not who we are, we have been transformed. That we are no longer united to Adam and, and sin and death, but we are united to Christ and righteousness and life. May that reality, Father, may Your Spirit use it this week to strengthen us in the inner man to, to do battle with our, with our own flesh. With the residual hangover, as it were, of the life we once had. Oh, give us victory, Father. There are, there are some here among us who are struggling and have been struggling so hard with this sin pattern that continues to rear its head in their lives. Oh, Lord, may this week they find victory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our Father, we beg you, on behalf of those ones among us this morning, who have not yet been delivered. May you burn upon their conscience. The truth of the scriptures here. That they are desperate. There is nothing they can do. There is no good in them. There will be no grand scale in which they are measured. Or balanced in which they be weighed. And if they were they would surely fail. The standard is perfect. Your Perfection shall be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, perfect as He is perfect, the Bible says. And there is only one perfect one, and that is Christ. Open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ and flood their hearts with faith that they might flee to that cross and, and find life for their soul. We ask it in Jesus' name.